you'll turn with me to the second epistle of Peter. This uh, is a letter, and it's a relatively short letter, written by the Apostle Peter to uh, the churches of Asia that are located, that were located in what we know now as uh, Turkey uh, or Asia Minor. That country has changed hands many times over the centuries. Uh, at one time, it was uh, uh, heathen or Greek, uh, heathenistic. And then it became very uh, much affected by uh, Christianity. And uh, some of the greatest and largest churches uh, in Christianity uh, were in this area, the Church of Ephesus over 100,000 members, the Church of Philippi, the Church of Galatia. Uh, many, many of the churches that we know about, hear about in the Bible were in what is now modern-day Turkey, and modern-day Turkey today is, is, uh, is Muslim. It was overrun by the, uh, the, the Turks and the Ottoman Empire and became, uh, uh, you know, the Christians were either... Uh, uh, run out, or killed out, or went underground. And, uh, and today, it is one of the leading Muslim nations. Uh, Constantinople, which uh, was, was the capital city of the Roman Empire at one time, uh, is now Istanbul, one of the major cities of the Muslim faith. And, uh, and yet, there are many Christians that are still there. And uh, you, you, can, you can persecute the church, but you, can't, you can never eradicate the church. Amen. Because it'll, it, it, the embers of Christianity will always burn. And all they need is the right fodder, the right fuel, the right wind blowing, and they'll spring up again. And that's what's happening in the Muslim countries today. Tremendous revivals are going on in Egypt, in Middle Eastern countries, and even in Turkey. There's, there's a, a, you know, the persecution is still there, but the church is still there. Amen. And God has got, he's got plans for these people. And I, I think it goes all the way back to the seeds that were sown by the Apostle Paul, by Peter, John, and uh, other apostles that gave their lives and shed their blood for the gospel in these areas. And, and God's, very, God's more geographical-minded than we think he is. You know, the idea of nations and countries and borders, that's all God's ideas. You see, when, when man wanted to all be together and speak the same language, uh, they got in trouble. They challenged God. And so God put his foot in it and split them up into tribes that spoke different languages. And, that, you know, and that's, that's going to be the makeup of heaven. The Bible says heaven's made up of people of all tribes, all nations, all families, and all languages. Then in heaven, we'll be, we'll be one big happy family. Amen. And, uh, but that's, that's the future. But it's coming. 
It's your future. This letter is essentially a closing statement with the author looking towards his own death. And he's providing final warnings and instructions. He says in here that the Lord himself has revealed to him that his day of departure was at hand. He's not looking at execution orders. He's not listening to what people are saying. God himself has told him that your time here is short. You're about to be offered up. And so with that in mind, Peter's writing this letter. Now, how many of you know, if you know you're dying and you're writing your last words, you're going to make those words count. Amen. These words are going to have more weight and more bearing and more thought put into them than just normal conversation. This isn't a text message thought up in a few seconds and just sent out. This is a letter, handwritten letter, that was, was given out and hand-distributed throughout these churches, and it took a long time for these letters to get in the, this letter to get in the hands of all these people. Some say that Peter, Peter died before the, this letter got distributed. So when they got it, it was like getting the last words of a beloved friend after he had died. Even though he wrote it before he died, they didn't get it till after he died. Well, we didn't either. How many of you know we didn't get this letter till after Peter died? Okay? But it should have that same importance to us, that same significance. Just that, but knowing also that he was the apostle of God that was moved upon by the Holy Spirit to write these things. So this isn't just the words of Peter. These are the words of God through Peter. But they're, they're very sobering words. You know, you may or may not get shouting happy reading these three chapters. But we're going to try. Amen? Amen? Because we like to look at everything on the bright side. Because you can't know God. You can't really know God and go around depressed. Because he's already declared the end from the beginning. And he's, he's declared that we win. That we're the victors. That we were more than conquerors. He's gotten us the victory. So praise the Lord. Before you even read it. There might be some bad news in here. But before you even read it. Even the bad is looking good when God is in it. Can you say praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. And just in case uh, you're, you're thinking by what I'm saying that Peter makes this all about himself, you're wrong. Peter is constantly uplifting Jesus throughout this book. Thirty times he makes direct references to Jesus. Thirty times in three chapters. Thirty times in three chapters. He makes a direct reference to Jesus. And so you know what's on his mind. Or rather I could say you know who's on his mind. Amen? And um, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at chapter 1 this morning. 
and then next Sunday, chapter 2, and then finally chapter 3. But before we do that, uh, we're going to break this up into three parts. Coinciding with chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Isn't that funny how that works out? And uh, uh, I want you to take your pencil, your pen, or whatever. If you, if you um, can't write in your Bible, uh, find you a notepad or something. Write in somebody else's Bible. Amen. Like one preacher said, if you can't write in your Bible, buy a Bible you can write in. Because you need to take notes that you need, you need to make things personal. Like in my Bibles, you know, whenever I run across the term you or thee or thou or whatever or whosoever, I, I write my name in there. there it's like signing it. I'm, I'm claiming it. Whosoever. For God so loved the world. I've got my initials, RDT. For God so loved RDT, that's me, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever. Oh, that's me, RDT. I'll personalize it. So when I read it back, I read it that way. I read it like God's talking to me. Right, so make it personal. But uh, the first chapter, I want you to write this heading over the first chapter. The... T-H-E, the, the, true, T-R-U-E, the true. All right? That's what we're going to talk about today. People who are true. True believers. True saints. True Christians. True followers. True disciples. People of the truth. So chapter 1 is the true. We'll go to chapter 2, and we'll get, we'll get to that next week. And uh, just right above that, the, or the, the false. The false, F-A-L-S-E. Chapter 1 is about the true. Chapter 2 is about the false. We're going to talk about false teachers, false prophets, false disciples. Okay, then we get to chapter 3, and you, you can write this in, the, T-H-E, end, E-N-D, the end. Because in chapter 3, Peter talks about the end. When the earth is dissolved, burn up with a fervent heat, heaven and earth. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away. Peter talks about that in chapter 3. So that's the end. So we've got the true, the false, and the end. Okay? Chapter 1 is the true. Chapter 2, false. Chapter 3, the end. So now you know, now you know what Second Peter is about. And we haven't even read it yet. Okay, so chapter 1 gives us very distinctive and encouraging encapsulization uh, in, in of the basis for Christian living. You can consider uh, this one of, the, one of the greatest sanctification chapters in the Bible. And uh, 
I put it right alongside with Romans chapter 8 and Colossians chapter 3. You might write those down. Romans 8, Colossians chapter 3, and this chapter, they go hand in hand in, in terms of, of speaking about uh, our life in Christ and living a life of godliness and holiness and righteousness by the power of God that is at work in us. See, we can't do it in our, ourselves. It's by the power of God. So chapter 1 gives us some really practical advice, but some great revelation concerning how we can bring, we, we can manifest in our life the very life of God. And uh, that's, what, that's what we're going to look at, verse 1. Let's look at verses 1. Um, We'll, we'll read through verse 4. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. You see, by grace are you saved, and that through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast, but a faith that is a gift from God. The faith that we have is given to us by God through the hearing of His precious Word. It creates within us faith to believe on Jesus and thereby obtaining His righteousness. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace is God's presence at work in our life for our benefit and to benefit others through us. Uh, grace is more than unmerited favor. Grace is really God himself at work in you to benefit you and to use you to benefit others. Not based upon your knowledge, your wisdom, your power, your, your righteousness or your strength, but His. You just become, you become a surrendered, surrendered vessel and, and an obedient vessel. Surrender means obedient. And God works through you. You become His agent in the world for grace and peace. Peace doesn't mean lack of noise. It doesn't mean there's not going to be tribulation or struggle or hardships. Peace is God putting you over the top in whatever life throws at you. You wind up on top. Peace is uh, another word for this peace would be prosperity. We don't use that word too much because people are weird about the word. And that's because people don't know what words mean. And they're too lazy to find out. They don't own a dictionary. Prosperity means more than money. Prosperity means God putting you over. Putting you over the top. That's prosperity. You see, if you, if you had no debts you wouldn't necessarily be prosperous. 
I never just pray, Lord, help me get out of debt. Because if I was out of debt, but I wasn't prosperous, I'd, I'd get right back into debt. It's like quicksand. I don't ever pray, Lord, just get me out of debt. I want the Lord to get me out of debt and put me over, put me over on and put me on top so that I'll, I'll never get, I'll never need to get back into debt. I want to be a lender and not a borrower. And that's a promise of God. And God has given us, uh, he's given us a system whereby we can make that happen. But it's, it's, it's part of his divine plan for our lives. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. And we're to be kind to the poor. But he didn't say you would be poor always. He said you would have the poor people around you always. He didn't say you would be poor. So when you read that, the poor ye shall have with you always, don't put your initials over the word poor. Put your initials over the word you. Yeah. <laughs> and we read it like this. The poor Ronnie will have with Ronnie always. And Ronnie's going to be generous to the poor. And he's going to be kind to the poor. But he isn't one of them. Amen? Amen. I'm talking about a discipline of thought and where you're going to focus your faith. I heard one of the prophets say this week that God is going to raise up hundreds of Christian billionaires. And not just one billion, but multiple billion, people with multiple billions of dollars that will be able to buy out and control uh, major uh, industries, you know, like buy up a whole news network, buy up a whole TV channel, buy satellites, buy MGM Studios, buy out, I mean, and, and actually change the whole nature and character of these industries and bring about a cultural uh, reformation in the United States because God has prospered them and given them the economic might and power to take over these things. Amen. Amen. Jerry Savelle, have y'all ever heard of Jerry Savelle? You know, Jerry Savelle has, has I, I've heard him state this several times, that one of his goals is to, is to put his own satellite up into space so that there can be a, a, a Christian satellite where you don't have to rent satellite space from uh, worldly companies and businesses that can shut you off anytime they want to. He wants to own his own satellite and make satellite time available to gospel ministry. They don't have to worry about being banned or those other words. 
He's, and you know, he said it's going to take a billion dollars. But he said, I'm going to, you know, with God's help, we're going to do that. We're going to do it with God's help. Was that Ch Char Jesse Duplantis? I'm sorry. Jesse Duplantis. But I'm sure Jerry Savelle will help him. All right. Jesse Duplantis. And you all know Jesse Duplantis is crazy enough to do it. Well, you think, oh, you know, the world, they just think, oh, that's just terrible. All these preachers, you know, all these preachers greedy. They want, they want this. They want that. Who cares what they think? They're working for the devil. They're speaking for the devil. Quit listening to the devil. God is saying, I need some of my own people to be billionaires. Anybody volunteer? Well, you better have billionaire vision or God's not going to give it to you. If you don't have something worthy of billions, God's going to give it to Jesse. Guys like Jesse and Kenneth Copeland, Jerry Savelle, you know, they, they got places already in mind to put it, use it. Amen. So it's according, to your, it's according to your faith and your vision. God's not going to waste it. Verse 1, you know, uh, verse 3, he goes on to say, According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has given by His divine power. Everybody say divine power. Divine. It's not by might, not by our own ability, not by our own strength and our own cunningness, but it's by His power. God has given us His divine power so that we can have all things that pertain unto life and godliness. The word life there is his life. Zoe. God, that's the only kind of life God can give you, by the way. He can only give you what he's got. And he's, why, would he give, why would he give you a substandard life when he could give you his life? What kind of a father would say, you know, I live in a mansion, I live in this wealth and all, I have all this power, but I want you on the other side of those tracks over there. I want you to live without any of this. I'll give you a subsistence life. And you're just going to have to make it. If you get in trouble, you know, I'll throw some crumbs your way. Now, what kind of father would do that to his own children? Our Heavenly Father doesn't. He said, I'm giving, you enough, I'm giving you the power to have my life. And I've given you everything that pertains to it. I've given you everything that pertains to my life and godliness. Now, there's another word that we need to know what it means. Godliness means God-likeness. That little suffix, L-I or L-Y, means just as. 
or like. So if you were to separate this word, it, 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 really, it, really, is, it really means God-likeness or like God. He's given us everything that pertains to his life and his likeness. Amen. When God gave us Jesus, he gave us himself. Yeah. And he's poured himself into us. All we have to do is surrender our lives to him, believe on him and trust in him, and we have every bit of power to become like him and to share in his life. Do you believe that? Yes, Through the knowledge of him that has called us unto glory and virtue. See, the more we know about him, the more like him we are to become. Knowing Jesus is not only to love him, but it's to mirror him. If you know him, you will mirror him. You will be his reflection. That's what grace is. His, grace is when he comes and impacts you so much that you reflect him into the world. He is the light of the world, but then you become the light of the world. He's the bread of life, and then your words become bread for people. Bread of life. Everything that Jesus is, we become. Not in the by and by and the hereafter, but now. Now. If Jesus is the great physician, then we are his surgeons, his interns, his dispensers of healing. If Jesus is healing and he's in us, then he's going to manifest through us for the healing of people. Whether I have faith for it or not. It doesn't matter. I'm not the one doing it. Amen? Amen. Right. See, Jesus is the healer. Do you believe that? All right. So I'm I'm just gonna watch I'm just gonna walk over here and I'm gonna lay hands on this sweet lady and her precious eyes. And I'm just gonna say in the name of Jesus, be healed. Thank you, Lord, for healing these eyes and behind the eyes and under the eye, over the eye, the optic nerve, the, everything that is related to this eye, even to the eyelids and eyelashes, healed in Jesus' name. Amen. Then I'm just going to walk away and let Jesus do the work. That's all. All I am is the conduit. All I am is the conduit. You know what a conduit is? It's a water hose. It's hooked up to the hydrant and it pours out the other end. All you got to do is be there and let God roll and flow through you. Praise God. I know I'm not getting very far, but it, it don't matter. This, this, this book isn't going anywhere. Amen? He said, we, have, we whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Now, the way, the way a lot of Christians live... It's like God just gave you a promise. 
if you behave, don't mess up, I promise you, I'll consider letting you into heaven. Well, that is a precious promise, but it isn't an exceeding great and precious promise says. When things are, when things are written like this, you've got to look at the words. Exceeding. Exceeding. You know what exceeding means? It means over the top. It means more than enough. It means excessive. And then you tack it on to the word great. You've got over the top, excessive, great. And then you add precious. And that word precious means valuable, priceless, like gold, rubies, diamonds, rare things. Exceeding great and precious, valuable promises. They're already given to you. That by these, by these exceeding great and precious promises, you might be a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped that old nature. He, he says, the corruption that is in the world through lust. That old corrupt nature, you've escaped it. He says, having escaped it. That means you already escaped it. You are escapees. You've escaped your former lust, your former nature, your low life, sinful, fallen nature. You've escaped it. Boy, that's not preaching pulpits much. See, religion wants to keep you in that so they can keep you guilty and keep you down and control you. And make you pay them for a good feeling. Then the gospel preacher comes along like Peter and says, You've already escaped that. And God has given you exceeding great and precious promises that you might be a partaker of His divine nature. That means like God, like you. Like you, like God. I mean, you, you are the same. You're the same nature. You've got the same nature. You've been a partaker of the nature of God. Have been already. If you'll let it happen. If you'll let it happen in your head and in your heart. Get it, get it through your skull once and for all. That you are no longer of this world. You are now of God as little children. And you become as, as Ephesians 5.1 says. You are imitators of God as little children. What does it mean to be an imitator? It means to be a reflector. Whatever God is, that's what you is. Excuse my English. But you understood me, didn't you? Whatever God is, you, can, you reflect it. Now, Peter's, Peter's getting, us, he's getting us ready for the end of time. Next chapter, we're going to be dealing with false prophets and false teachers. Well, you're not going to ever you're not going to ever recognize the false until you understand the the, the true. And the truth concerning you in Christ is you are a partaker of the divine nature. Man. It means more than 
that you may share in the blessings which that nature bestows. It means that into you comes the very God himself. We're not just telling people about how good God is. We are becoming the goodness of God. We're not just telling people how generous God is and how forgiving God is. We're going around and we're telling people, you are forgiven. Jesus did it. Wherever he went, he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. Take up thy bed and walk. Who are you to tell somebody their sins are forgiven? Blasphemy, blasphemy, blasphemy. Well, if you think that's bad, before he leaves, he turns around and says, Whosoever sins you remit shall be remitted. And whosoever sins you retain shall be retained. Guess what? If you are a real believer and a real true receiver of the grace of God, and you're going to reflect who God is, you're going to go around and you're going to go around telling people their sins are forgiven them. You're going to tell them, hey, the prison door is open. Walk out. Go free. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. God forgives you. Jesus forgives you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Amen. And when they persecute us, we're going to reflect Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We come across... Needs, big needs, little needs, great needs. We don't think in terms of, you know, how am I going to meet this need? We think in terms of, Father, I thank you that you've heard me even before I prayed. And you have provided. And we just break the fish and the loaves and we just start feeding people. And watch the miracles happen. Why? We're reflection of the miracle God. Whatever God is, you're supposed to reflect that to this world. And boy, I'm preaching to me too. I got one finger at you and I got three coming back at me. But I like this preaching. It's helping me. Amen? Is it helping you? <laughs> okay, so this, uh, this, this uh, Divine nature is found in His power, that's verse 3, and it's, it's found based on His promises, that's verse 4. It's His power and His promises. It's not your power, it's His power and His promises. How can I say these things? Because God said it, and if God said it, in His saying of it is the power for it to be. Okay. Now, verse 5. Life, this life, this supernatural God life is to be lived with diligence. Look at verse 5. And besides this, giving all diligence. Everybody say diligence. Diligence. Add to your faith Virtue, add to virtue, knowledge, add to knowledge, temperance, to temperance, patience, to patience, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Now what's that? 
What is that? That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is. Same stuff. So, we, we become diligent to, by the Holy Spirit, become producers of the fruit of the Spirit. We need to differentiate between spiritual fruit and uh, evil fruit. A tree is known by his fruit. He says in verse 8, For if these things be in you and abound, they shall make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in what? The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no reason for you not to know him intimately. You don't need to be on a formal uh, nature with Jesus. You need to be very personal with him. Amen? You don't want to be uh, you know, on a handshake relationship. You want to be on a huggy-kissy relationship. You want to really know him. That word knowledge means intimate knowledge, not just head knowledge but the kind of knowledge you get by hanging out with somebody, by living with somebody. See, Ruth lives with me, so she knows some things about me you don't know, and I trust you'll never know. But see, there's knowledge, and then there's knowledge, true knowledge. We're talking about the true. We're not talking about superficial stuff here. We're talking about you having a true, deep, intimate relationship with Jesus that produces fruit in your life. Now, when you were young couples, your intimacy, your deep, intimate relationships produced children. How many of you have had children? Woohoo! That's, that's right and proper. And I can, I can joyfully say, I've only had children with my wife. I haven't been intimate and productive with other people like that. It's a secluded club, marriage is. We swear, we vow to each other to forsake all others. And cling only to each other. Amen? Well, that's what we did when we came to Jesus. We said, Jesus, no other gods. No other gods. I forsake all others. And I come only to you, Jesus. Only you, Jesus. And then we pursue Jesus like lovers. He pursues us. We pursue him. And then he produces this fruit in our lives. That does what? that reflects his character and nature to the world. Right now, I've got, I've got a son in Arizona, a daughter in Texas, and you can look at them and you can listen to them and you can say, I see their daddy. I hear their daddy. I see their mama. I was listening to Heather on the phone yesterday, the day before. She hung up. After a very lengthy phone call. 
And I, I love I love hearing from Heather. I mean, she calls me every day. And uh, when she hung up, I, I told Ruth, I said, she sounds just like her Aunt Glenda, Norma's sister. The way she talks, the inflection, and the more she's been in Amarillo, she's even got the accent down now. And I mean, you know, her expressions, I'm thinking, Boy, you know, the, the, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. And with Aaron, you know, I see a lot of Aaron's uncle in him. I see different traits. Well, see, when people look at us, the Bible says they're going to say they have been with Jesus. And they're not talking about, you know, at the Olive Garden. They're going to talk about they've been in an intimate relationship with Jesus because they're talking like Him. They're walking like Him. They're behaving like Him. And they're producing like Him. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also because I go into my Father. So He says in verse 10, wherefore rather, brethren, give diligence. There it is again. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to give diligence to make our calling and election sure. Now, I've read that a million times, it seems like. And most of the time when you read that, you think about, you're thinking about your salvation. Give diligence to make sure you get saved, make sure you go to heaven. But if you read it in its context, what Peter's talking about here, it's we need to give diligence to make our election and calling of being like Jesus in this world. Sure. See, it's not good enough. Thank God if you get, if you get to heaven. Praise God you made it to heaven. Because most, most people are not going. Making it to heaven is a great accomplishment. But in this life, God has a calling and an election that he's put upon you to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives. And we need to represent him well. Amen? And then uh, in verse 12, he starts remembering some things. And he's telling us to remember. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Say present truth. See, a, a lot of people, especially when they're thinking about the end times and all that, they're thinking about future, future events, future truths, future this, that, and the other. Peter says, don't forget about the present truth, about who you are now. Verse 13, yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up. 
by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle. Another version says tent. He's calling his physical body his tent. Even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. That's why he's writing this. Because he's about to die. He knows it. He wants to give him something to remember. So I'm helping this morning by reading these scriptures and stirring these things up for you so that you'll remember, you won't forget. And then he talks about uh, how there are two witnesses to everything he has said. The first witness is, the, is uh, him and the rest of the apostles. Verse 16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's not talking about the next coming. He's talking about his first coming. They were eyewitnesses of it. We saw his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. See, he's remembering a high point in his spiritual walk with Jesus. And that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. This voice, verse 18, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. So it's clear what he's talking about. Peter is remembering. You know, everybody has favorite moments, high points in their spiritual walk. For you, it might be the day you got saved. Might be the day you received the Holy Spirit baptism. Everybody's got these little spiritual uh, hallmark moments. Well, for Peter, it was the Mount of Transfiguration. Because that's where he saw Jesus glorified. And he became a witness of who Jesus is. And he writes about it here. Verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So he's saying you have, you have two witnesses. You have those of us that have seen it with our own eyes. And then you have the prophecy of Scripture. You have the Scriptures. You got the witness of the Scriptures. Now later on in this book, he, he mentions that the writings of the Apostle Paul are Scripture. And that's, that's before the canon of the New Testament scriptures were put together and recognized, you know, by church elders. Peter's already called in the writings of Paul scripture. So we not only have, we not only have the eyewitness account, 
but we have the scriptures as well that were written by Peter and Paul and James and John and so forth. Ephesians 2.20 says that we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we are built, in other words, we, we are built up as a church upon these witnesses. Eyewitnesses and prophetic scripture. So the end of chapter 1 lets us know that the scriptures are even more sure than other voices we might hear. That's why, that's why we take everything we hear and judge it against the scriptures because it's a more sure word of prophecy. Now, I didn't say that. Peter did. God did. 